Welcome to the BMJ Podcast. This week we find out about James Bond's legendary boozing. So not really something that's going to, going to be conducive to dealing with a, a highly stressful situation. But first, we have the second part of our Christmas appeal. Doctors of the World in London. Richard Hurley finds out more. This year's BMJ Christmas Appeal is for the charity Doctors of the World, which has projects going on in more than 70 countries around the world, including the Philippines and Syria. But um, today I'm not too far from the BMJ offices, just down the central line in East London, in Bethnal Green, where Doctors of the World has a clinic for undocumented migrants. So I've come to chat to the staff to find out about what they do. First, I sat down with Phil Merwell, who manages the clinic. Is that correct, Phil? I'm the clinic supervisor here, yeah. Um, so perhaps you could just tell us about the, the role of this clinic. So it's a drop-in clinic, and we see about 1,500 people every year. And the people we see are people who aren't able to access healthcare, mainstream healthcare, for a variety of reasons. Either they've tried and they've been turned away, or they don't know how to access healthcare or they're too scared of to access healthcare. For the most part, the people who come to the clinic are vulnerable migrants, um, but we also do some work with sex workers and we have in the past worked with people who are homeless. They're people who are falling through the gaps. Our role is to make sure that they can access mainstream healthcare, so we'll advocate for that. So often that will be to make sure that they can access primary care, so to register with a GP. In the meantime, we'll, we have doctors and nurses at the clinic who can provide some medical care. One of the patients at the clinic told me why she was there. Because she doesn't speak English, another stumbling block for many migrants trying to access health care, her friend interprets for her. Have you travelled far today? From Milton Key. That's a long way. And did you try and register with G- a GP already or try and access health care in some other way? You see, her first time... Um, her friends um, refer her, her to here, yeah, so um, it's like free, so she come here because it's free. She doesn't have any documents or ID. And I'm looking into that on her behalf today, and it's proving to be quite challenging. Um, we come up across a lot of barriers, and a lot of it seems to be at the registration process. Once we get through to the doctor, they're always very happy to see our patients. It's with a great degree of frequency that we see secondary care regulations being applied at primary care. So we see people being asked for proof of their immigration status, or we see people being asked to show a visa. We also find that people don't know how the health system works, so they don't realise that they're entitled to access healthcare. I understand you've uh, you've surveyed clients and you have some interesting statistics about um, you know that their fear of being arrested. I think one of the reasons that people don't access mainstream healthcare is because there's a real fear. We did a survey here of the people who come to a clinic and one in five patients were worried that they might be detained or arrested if they tried to access healthcare. She doesn't feel well, because it's, it's been four years that she doesn't have any checkup or anything. Okay. Are you worried about being deported if you were to go and see a GP? She's worried that they will force her to go back to Vietnam if, if she sees a doctor. She's scared to be deported. She says she can't go back to Vietnam because it will affect not only her but her family as well. Because the people will come to her family if they know that she's there. Like this woman, 
Many of the people who turn up at the clinic have waited a long time to visit a doctor. Dr Catherine Taylor, a North London GP and a volunteer at the clinic, told me what she sees. Often it's pregnant women who haven't accessed any antenatal care yet, haven't seen any less than six months yet. The patients with hypertension, there's one patient we diagnosed and have no idea. She couldn't even remember ever having her blood pressure checked before and she's a lady who presented um, with headaches and never had her blood pressure checked and that was quite high. And the mental health problems, people have been here for years and, and years and um, suffered uh, violence or issues, um, difficult journeys getting here, all sorts of things, horrific things in their past who've either not been able to speak to anyone about it or not had access to formal therapy and not been on any antidepressants and they've um, just been getting worse and worse. With migrants already facing so many barriers to getting basic health care, Phil is concerned about the Department of Health's proposals to impose a levy for migrants accessing primary care. At Doctor of the World, we don't believe that health tourism exists on any on the kind of scale which certain politicians in certain parts of the media would have us believe. There's no evidence which has been published which suggests otherwise. What we see at the clinic is that people have come here because they're vulnerable for a variety of reasons, but people haven't come here for health reasons, they haven't come here to be treated. Since the summer when there's been the consultation around charging migrants for for care, when there's been a lot more focus in the press and a lot more talk from politicians about supposed health tourism, what we've seen is that a great proportion of our service users are being turned away from registration at primary care level, which should be open for all, and they're being turned away because they're being told they're not eligible when they are. And of course, the impact of not getting timely care reaches beyond individual patients. They have disastrous consequences on their own health, but also of the health of those in their community, whether it's an infectious disease that's not being treated or a child is not being immunised or someone who's got mental health needs that then will, um, will impact on the people around them. So BMJ readers uh, who might be thinking of volunteering, do you have a message for them? Uh, I think it's a very valuable um, experience, very rewarding experience um, and you meet um, patients from a huge variety of backgrounds who really, really need your care and are really appreciative of what you can do for them. If you're not able to volunteer your time, a donation would go a long way. So I'd really say to anybody who's listening or any BMJ readers that it would be great if anybody is able to donate to, to our clinic this Christmas. The money which you donate would go a long way in our clinic. We're not a flash clinic and we really make sure that things last and that we, we take good care of people and we make good use of the money that you donate. If you would like to make a donation, that donation will also support volunteers, other doctors and nurses who are, who are here in the clinic, um, taking days off and spending their free time to, to provide this really vital medical service. Any donation, small or large, would be really greatly appreciated. And if that's inspired you to donate, have a look at bmj.com to find out how. Or, if you're in the UK and you have your mobile handy, text DOCTOR to 70030 to donate £10. Do it now. James Bond, legendary secret agent, Marksman, womanizer, smoker, but perhaps most famously, drinker. I doubt there's many of you who haven't heard how he likes his martinis, but how much did he actually drink? 
Well, a group of doctors, Neil Guha and Patrick Davies from Nottingham and Graham Johnson from Derby, have documented his drinking for a BMJ Christmas article. Earlier this week, I caught up with them to ask more. Can I do something for you, Mr Bond? Uh, just a drink. A martini, shaken, not stirred. Neil, as with all the Christmas BMJ articles, this topic might not be that serious, but there's always a message in there that is. Um, with this one, it's the burden of excessive alcohol consumption in the UK. So can you quantify that for us? Alcohol is a really major problem uh, in the UK, and death from chronic liver disease in the UK is now one of the top five killers. First of all, it's rising, which is in stark contrast to the other major causes of death, including yeah. heart disease, lung disease, and so forth. And secondly, it's the population it affects. The average age from death from chronic liver disease is 59, which is compared to above 80 in the other conditions. So it's affecting a, you know, a young population. And I use the word chronic liver disease, but really that's almost interchangeable with alcohol because deaths from alcohol representing chronic liver disease are approximately 80%. So, you know, if we look at how many people die from from liver disease, the exact figures are uncertain, but we think it's around over 12,000 patients per year and around 9,000 patients um, die from alcohol-related liver disease. So it's a, it's a major burden of disease. Mm. And it seems to be increasing in, in quite a dramatic fashion. So... If you look at deaths over the last 20 years, they've increased by almost 200%. Um, and there's regional variation. So particularly in the northwest and the northeast, those rates uh, may be as high as 300%. And that's in stark contrast uh, to the rest of Europe, um, where deaths from, from liver disease are, in fact, uh, decreasing. Um, and really, we're only in comparison to... The UK can only be really be compared to uh, some of the Eastern European countries um, in terms of both consumption um, and uh, liver-related death. Mm. Dry martini. Oui, monsieur. Wait. Three measures of Gordon's, one of vodka, half a measure of quinoa lily, shake it over rice, and then add a thin slice of lemon peel. So, Patrick, you decided to go through and count up all of James Bond's drinks. Uh, why on earth would you do that? Well, because first of all, it was a bit of fun, um, but also um, there is quite an important health message in this paper. Um, this, this idea started, I was, reading, I was reading a James Bond book by Sebastian Falks, and it just, just struck me that um, his, um, his alcohol consumption was surprisingly high. So um, the two of us read through um, the, the 14 books, um, seven books each, and um, every, time, every time that James Bond was noted as taking a drink, we documented that mm. um, um, per day of activity within, within, um, within the, the books that we could quantify his, um, his daily and therefore weekly alcohol consumption. Yep. Now, um, as uh, Bond would say, not all martinis are created equal or equally strong. So how did you actually quantify you know, the number of units, the, the, the volume of actual ethanol he was consuming as opposed to you know, a beer here or, or a whiskey there or, or whatever it was that uh, Fleming mentioned? 
we use a variety of sources. Um, there are papers which look into the actual amount of spirits which are poured for a drink. So the NHS um, has quite good alcohol and awareness sites which tell you which tell you how much a fixed volume is. Mm. So, for instance, one bottle of wine we, we put down as nine units. Um, a regular measure of neat spirits was 1.25 units and so on and so on. There were some difficulties, though, when, when Ian Fleming mentioned things like um, lots of drinks or things like um, bring in the drink tray. And we had to, had to make some decisions about um, what, what, what those amounts were. We did try to make the assumptions conservative overall. Mm. How well did Fleming actually describe Bond's drinking? Um, well, um, one of the limitations of, of the study is um, how accurate assumption of alcohol alcohol consumption we can make from a third-party author who's documenting the alcohol intake um, of someone someone completely different and um, who is also by the way fictional <laughs> um, but actually he detailed his drinking um, extremely accurately lots of detail and we um, counted up over over 87 and a half days um, of active service um, 1,150.15 units of alcohol. Mm. And I did a sort of quick calculation earlier, and I make that out to be about 28 bottles of vodka, which is um, fairly good going. It's not good going, and that's our message, um, that actually, actually um, he's, um, he's drinking um, to alcoholic levels. The lady will have a Bacardi on the rocks. For the gentleman, vodka martini, shaken, not stirred. Okay, so Graham, if we turn to you now, I mean, what would be the acute effects of him drinking so much alcohol um, and then going on a mission? Uh, so, well, the, the chief problems that he'll find are um, uh, poor, poor judgment, um, coordination problems, um, his you know, f- fine motor skills will be reduced, um, increasingly emotional, irrational um those kind of things they're not really something that's going to going to be conducive to dealing with a, a highly stressful situation regard requiring high levels of um physical skill and uh intellectual insight that's not mm-hmm. it's not going to set them up well for that neil you also mentioned that it's possible the shaking may be due to alcohol induced cerebral tremor um, how much do you have to drink before that becomes an issue? And was Bond well into that territory? The cerebellum is is part of the brain that controls coordination, um, and one would expect there would have to be quite a degree of atrophy um, for that to occur. But one of the things that should be noted is that um, alcohol can affect different organs in different people. So we sometimes pe- see people who, for example, have got very significant damage to their their brain but haven't got an associated damage to other organs so it's not always congruous the the reading that i've done around this for for this paper there was nothing really to say if you're drinking at level x um then you are more you know eight times more likely to um uh, to develop a a cerebellar tremor but the the overwhelming kind of themes throughout the literature was just a, a uh, chronic and consistent exposure to toxins such as alcohol would be enough to cause um, generalised cerebellar damage. So, uh, unfortunately, we can't we can't give you a kind of a risk score for that. I don't think we're fairly well known as a nation of boozers. 
So where would James Bond fit into the general population's levels of drinking? From the analysis, the J- James Bond's drinking is, is, is exceptionally high. You know, he's drinking at a, um, a harmful level of 92 units per week. Of course, one thing we realize is that not everyone who drinks excessively gets uh, liver cirrhosis, for example, or the other complications. But of course, the probability of you developing those complications is related to the exact quantity that you drink. Mm. And, of, and of course, his, um, his smoking habits were as legendary as Ian Fleming's as well. I think it's uh, towards the end of Casino Royale, the first chapter, just as he's coming to the end of the day, the line is, Bond lit his 70th cigarette of the day, um, which I think is not uh, not that unusual for uh, for him. Uh, we did start off to briefly look at that and just found it was it was uh, very difficult to track how much he exactly smoked, but there were just, you know, the, the books are littered with references such as that um, and referring to overflowing, overflowing ashtrays and things like that, so that would further compound his risk. Fleming died quite young at 56, and you suggest that uh, given his um, consumption and general lifestyle, he might, uh, James Bond might be looking at a, a similar early death. Well, as I said, one of, one of the tragedies of alcohol-related liver diseases is, um, is that it does affect a population that is much younger uh, than the traditional causes of other chronic conditions and the average age of death from chronic liver disease in the UK is 59. We are seeing the average age of death decreasing um, in, a quite, in a quite stark manner. Um, it's not uncommon for liver specialists to look after patients um, in their 20s and 30s with liver cirrhosis um, and a decade ago um, that was certainly something that would be uh, the exception rather than the rule. And so if uh, Commander Bond did appear in your liver clinic, what would you say to him? I think we would offer him some hope because the liver is a marvellous organ. Um, One of the things it does have the ability to do is regenerate. So if you take away the underlying insults, the liver can heal itself and get better. So we would we would end the consultation uh, with the very optimistic aspect of if he was able to, uh, you know, abstain from alcohol for a prolonged period of time, ideally six months to a year, even if he had sustained some damage, um, there would be a very good chance that the liver could repair itself and 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 function normally. Mm. And presumably, his powers of rec- Recuperation are, uh, are fairly advanced, given that he's um, still in the field 50 years after he first started. <laughs> I make no comment. <laughs> Welcome, Martini. Chicken or stirred? Do I look like I give a damn? And that article is available online now, along with some more Christmas BMJ goodies. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be back with Virgin Births in America. And why it's better be happy rather than right. Join us then. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you want to hear more, including previous Christmas ones, check out podcast.bmj.com where you can find our back catalogue. Thanks for listening. <laughs>